If you're wondering what me having an ear infection, a top ENT surgeon, and whether me and the top ENT surgeon would recommend being a doctor to our children have in common, then today's episode is for you as we discuss whether we would recommend being a doctor to our children and if not, why? And that's towards the end of the episode, FYI. What's changed in medicine and why are so many doctors dissatisfied and burnt out and choosing to not progress in training or retire, locum or emigrate or work more in the private sector? So hopefully this is useful to you. Remember, it's just me and the ENT surgeon sharing our opinions and we talk about how we met, which was very random and involved me having an ear infection. But it's just our opinion, nothing more than that. I think if you want the hard data and facts and figures on this, the BMA are running a campaign about this kind of thing at the moment, and I would just signpost you to check out the BMA resources for that. Remember, if you like this, don't forget, if you don't want to miss an episode, you need to subscribe. So if you're watching on YouTube, just hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on your podcast player, subscribe on your podcast player of choice. And we hope you find this episode useful. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's episode, it is my absolute pleasure to be joined by Mr. Joe Manuali. Thanks very much for having me, Tommy. Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourself and then I'm going to tell us how you ended up being here because I love the story. (laughs) Yeah, so I am an ENT surgeon. I'm an ENT consultant in London. I specialise specifically in ears and hearing restoration surgery for adults and kids. I'm in no way any sort of expert on finance or probably any of the other things we're going to talk about. But yeah, I'm sure you'll explain kind of how we got talking. Yeah, I mean, I I just love this. So I was moaning on a podcast about having an ear infection and I couldn't wear my headphones because it was really painful. And I need no sympathy for that because it was caused by too much surfing. I live right by the beach. It's been an insane winter of surf, but unfortunately the water is pretty dirty because our local company discharge sewage into the water, which is nice. So yeah, I had a moan about that. And Joe really kindly emailed in to say, look, I'm happy to look in your ear for you because your podcast has been so helpful. And honestly, that just totally blew me away with your kindness because, you know, of course, me and Ed get the idea that a lot of people find this podcast useful and we absolutely love doing it. But the fact that you would just email in and say, look, I'll check out your ear for you. So that was so kind. And then actually it got more ridiculous. I had in total five ENT consultants that emailed me all offering the same and with some tips about earplugs and, you know, blue tech and stuff like that. So I was just blown away by that. So yeah, I mean, just thanks so much for doing that. But then you sent me a link to a YouTube presentation, which you gave, which was entitled, what was the title? It was something along the lines of life as a surgeon, life as a doctor, what has changed in a generation? Yeah. And would we encourage our children into medicine? And that just raised some amazing points for me that were just absolutely bang on because, you know, a lot of doctors are struggling at the moment. There's a lot of dissatisfied doctors. There's probably going to be a strike by the junior doctors, depending on we're recording late January. So a lot of doctors are choosing to retire, locum and emigrate. And you just have a unique 
insight into this and your unique insight is that okay you are an ENT surgeon now but you watched your father who was also an ENT surgeon and how it was for him and I think this is pretty key like the generational difference like what is going on why are doctors struggling and we are going to answer that question about would we recommend medicine to our children but we're going to do that at the end because that's what the youtube algorithm loves people to watch <laughs> till the end so save that don't answer that bit but what's going on what's going wrong what's going right and what is the difference between now and when your father was training yeah i mean that talk that i gave it at the royal society of medicine and it was a sort of a culmination of about 18 months of just churning over some of these thoughts and i guess when you're going through training you you know you work hard and you have this kind of undefined social contract within the profession you know which says you work hard you make your sacrifices you give it your all and don't have too many priorities above medicine and you know at the end of it will be a very fulfilling outcome you know both professionally economically and whatever else and I suppose having a dad in the who did exactly the same job as me means that I had a very you know vivid and direct comparison of what I thought I might expect. He you know, moved to this country from another country, you know, without huge amounts of family backup. I certainly remember him working exceptionally hard in his SHO and registrar years. And I was born when he was an SHO. So I had a very vivid memory of those struggles. But I also, you know, he was able to, you know, afford private school education on one salary. And, you know, we lived in a nice house on the south coast and you know he I, I very much you know admire what he did and you know I think he would hopefully say that it was all worth it I have myself I love my job I love working in the NHS but I also recognize why those around me and those you know you only have to go on social media to realize that the vibe has changed significantly and I also recognize that I have had a number of you know legs up that enabled me to feel like that you know I've had help to get on the London property ladder. And I still would say I live, you know, a much more economically simple life, you know, right now compared to perhaps my parents at the same stage. And that just got me thinking, you know, if I feel like that, then what about people who are going into this profession who, you know, have not had those unfair advantages? And I'm thinking about it more now as a consultant where I'm inevitably having to, you know, decide how much I ask of those juniors. And, you know, what led me to write that talk is there's a big part of me that's starting to feel like I don't think I can ask of my juniors what I was asked and happily did. And yet I'm not sure there's a full recognition in the profession intergenerationally of those differences. And I think you have to go on social media to also recognise that there are some differences in attitude between people that have retired in you know five years ago and those that are coming through right now in terms of, you know, do junior doctors still have a fair deal? Are they right to strike? So that was the background to me giving the talk. And now that I'm in a consultant job where, you know, I love it and I'm well supported by my colleagues, I feel like I can be bold and say some of those things too. Yeah. And do you reckon you would have given that talk if you were a trainee? Because I'm going to be honest, I wouldn't have. Okay. And I think it's just probably not a popular opinion, but I think it's a really important opinion. But do you reckon you would have given that if you hadn't got your consultant job or not? No, I think I would have been much more cautious about it. But I think also, you know, if you look five, six, seven years ago, doctors talking about money was just so much more taboo and cringy. I think, you know, your podcast has been a great way of breaking down those barriers, actually, you know, because there is, it, it will become increasingly clear that we as doctors, 
in a new generation do have to care about this and do have to think about it for the sake of our families, if nothing else, but also our own kind of weighing up whether this the toil was all worth it. And, you know, you're enabling a nation of doctors to kind of get things right, to be able to keep going and keep serving the patients, I think. But no, I think I would have been more careful. I would have been worried about what my consultants would think of me, you know, talking about money as a doctor, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when we first started this project, me and Ed were really worried about talking about money for all the reasons that you mentioned. But in a way, so I just came from a normal working class background. No one in my family is a doctor, but just a normal family, right? But that's not a normal medical family. I know that because lots of doctors come from backgrounds similar to yours. But I think in a way, people like me are canaries in a coal mine because 15 years ago when I graduated, I was in a lot of financial trouble with all my student loans and everything. And so I was like a canary in the coal mine. And now the conditions have continued to deteriorate so much that now it affects every doctor. And so I think that is kind of why everyone's talking about it now. And it is so important because ultimately we all want the same thing. You know, I just want to go to work, enjoy my job, which I do, but I just want to be given the time and resources to do the very best, use the skills that I have to do the very best for the patient in front of me. And increasingly, Unfortunately, I think that's becoming more difficult, certainly over my short career of 15 years so far. But you mentioned social media, right? So social media can be a bit polarizing, pretty extreme. I want to show a slide here, which is from the GMC training survey, which is completed by doctors in training, because it's going to show that, unfortunately, social media is not polarized. So hopefully you can see my screen. Yeah. Yeah. So look at this graph, man. It's just, this is just terrible. So if you're listening on the podcast, I feel worn out at the end of a working day. What we're calling that 65% of doctors up from maybe 55% in 2018. Mm. Yeah, so that's bad. Okay. But the worst bit here for me is the burnout one. So I feel burnt out because of my work to a high or very high degree. So we're calling that 25% in 2018. Sorry, I've not got numbers on, but I'm just looking at it. And now in 2022, it's gone from 20 percent to 40%. It's not a pretty graph, this. No, and I think it's objectively clear that we as a profession are more unhappy than we ever have been in an entire generation. And I think, you know, the annual GMC surveys make that clear, you know, up to a third of, a quarter to a third of doctors are actively thinking of leaving the profession. When you sort of discuss graphs like this with people outside of that world, I think it's always worth kind of getting into the mind of the opposing view. And I think that the opposing view, you know, perhaps from someone that loved being a doctor and retired 10 years ago, for example, not wanting to broadly brush, but say that, for example, would say, you know, the medical career is meant to be hard. You're meant to sacrifice. You shouldn't go into it without being willing to work hard and make those sacrifices. And what I would say to that is that I don't think the majority of doctors now are burning out because of hard work. I don't think that that's just, you know, a that graph is basically a product of a, this generation being snowflakes. I think it's a systemic issue that is leading to something I turn as the stress of expectation disappointment leading to burnout. I really think that doctors burn out, not from hard work, but from the stress of expectation disappointment. You are you know, on that treadmill, getting your head down. You know, When you decide to do medicine, you're often you know, 16 or 17 years old. The only way you can forecast whether the sacrifices are going to be balanced out is by looking at the current doctors who are 10, 15 years down the line. And going into medicine is a long-term bet, isn't it? You're basically deciding, I'm going to pay high fees for six years. I'm going to work really hard as a junior doctor. 
And then economically, the trade-off will be that I have you know, professional satisfaction in the work I do. I'll be working in a system that is flourishing and I will be economically as comfortable as the consultant generation before me. I think that's probably how most people think when they go into medicine. And I think, you know, because of various economic factors affecting a whole generation, but particularly medics because it's a six year degree, people are now reaching 10, 15 years into that project that personal project and finding that the social contract has been you know pulled from under their feet and i think that is what is the sharpest cause of burnout i think yeah i think what you said is really personal it's something that i've said as well and i think the first person i saw mention it was mr tim lane who was at some point i think something to do with world college of surgeons you'll know more but the unwritten psychological contract that training is going to be hard you're going to work some incredibly long hours this job has never been easy it never will be easy but at the end there was a carrot and that carrot was you would have a really nice job you'd be able to help we get paid to help people get better i still think that's the best job in the world okay and that is a massive yeah. carrot and i think you're right that unwritten psychological contract has just been eroded by several things pay you know student loans tuition fees workload job satisfaction you know rotating randomly around the country away from family and friends there's such a long list and i want to get into that long list but just to back up what you just said, that people are no longer willing to take that gamble and are stepping off the ladder of training earlier and earlier. If you're in medical workforce planning, this graph should really scare you. Okay. So it's from the BMJ study, I think in 2019. And it basically shows the percentage of people entering speciality training. Okay. So if you're watching YouTube, it's just it's ugly. Okay. But, but if you're on the podcast, essentially 2010, 83% of people went into speciality training. Okay. In 2010, by 2018, that dropped to 38%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this is perhaps a sort of timeline of, you know, I went into core training in 2010 and now I'm a consultant to these juniors graduating in 2023. It doesn't make for happy reading, does it? But it also the other interesting thing to pick out from this is that it's been a slow trickle. It's been a slow creep over a decade or more. And that comes back to the whole thing about, you know, being in medicine is a long term project and people look ahead. And so, you know, if the life of a junior doctor has been massively eroded, you may only see the consequence of that in a generation's time. And this is what I'm thinking about, you know, because I know that I'm going to need really good colleagues around me to provide the service I currently provide in the future. And that means the current medical students and junior doctors, I care about who goes into it. You know, I'm going to need, you know, colleagues that have very highly skilled, you know, emotional intelligence, the ability to formulate huge amounts of data into management plans, good communication skills. They're not ubiquitous skills. And so you know, the counter argument to this will be we still have full medical schools and we still have oversubscribed training. You know, that might be true, but I would argue that you know, if you don't have some degree of competition and, you know, a critical volume of junior doctors all trying for these places, it will change the calibre of person available. I mean, that's difficult to say, but that's what I worry for the next 10 years. I think you're bang on. Like doctors have so many transferable skills that you just wouldn't believe and unfortunately more and more of those doctors are choosing to transfer those skills elsewhere because of everything we've talked about so we've talked a bit about the sort of 
soft factors that are driving people away. And I want to get more insight on you about how it was you versus your dad. But let's get into the podcast called Medics Money, right? We've got to talk about money. So, <laughs> so this is the graph from the BMA that shows the pay in real terms. And real terms are the only terms that matter, okay? Because hopefully everyone's learned a bit about inflation. You know, if your pay is going up by 1% and inflation is 5%, okay, you've had a 4% real terms pay cut, just using an example. So this graph, this is just really ugly. This is the 26.1% pay cut that the BMA have been referring to over the last 10 years for junior doctors. Okay. If you're a consultant and you're thinking, oh, I'm all right. Unfortunately, check this graph. No percentages, but again, a huge drop. I believe that's up to 30% real terms pay cut for doctors. Okay. So pay is important because pay is a measure of how you value your staff. And there's lots of other measures that you could do to value your staff. You could provide them with somewhere to rest when they're at work, which the NHS is notoriously poor at doing. You could get them somewhere to park their car when they come to work, NHS notoriously poor. You could even give them a locker so that if they like cycling, like I do, they can cycle to work. Very unheard of in the NHS. I think, you know, pay is definitely one issue. It's a big issue right now. What isn't really captured in this graph is all the things that I benefited from when I so I graduated in 2008, as I said, I'm not going to go over my working class hero story again, but I was just like a normal from a normal family. And I had 85 grand of debt, a mix of student loan, bank loans and some credit cards and a loan to my mum, which was the worst loan of all, because, you know, five thousand pounds was a lot of money to my mum. So let's just look at that going through. So tuition fees, I paid like hardly anything, okay? And now I think it's nine grand a year or something. But the student loan point is massive because I was on a what's called a plan one student loan, okay? So I paid an average of 1.1%, okay, to borrow nearly 25, over 25 grand for about 10 years. And that was basically free money, okay? Because it was just basically a below or at inflation rate loan okay it was what i would call good debt okay mm -hmm. but now after 2012 so plan one is finished that, that dream is over it, after 2012 you're on a plan two loan okay and a plan two loan the interest is worked out a lot differently okay so it depends how much you earn but doctors get pinched by this because at the start of their career they don't earn much and yeah it does ramp up a bit and so it's important to understand that a plan two student loan is much, much different to a plan one student loan. The interest rate, if you earn under £27,295 a year, is RPI. If you earn between 27296 to 49230 it's on a sort of taper. So RPI plus 3%. Okay, so RPI plus 3%. There's like, there's commercial loans available better than that. And once you go £49,000 a year, is RPI plus 3%. So just to quickly recap, the amount that you repay is you repay 9% of your earnings over £27,295, okay? Mm -hmm. And the implication of that is that most doctors are never going to pay off their student loan. And it is effectively a 9% tax yeah. for their whole career. And when I was repaying my student loan and my credit card and the, my mum loan and everything like that, it was really tough. But they're gone. They're repaid. And now all of that repayment money, I just file into stocks and shares investment. And I've recovered from what was a, ba a bad situation. Okay. I'm a bit concerned if I graduated now, 
that I would never recover because I've got this 9% drag on my finances. And the other thing is I lived in hospital accommodation, right? With a really nice flat because I had a partner. So we got like a, it was like a two bed flat, basically in the middle of St. Helier in Jersey, open market, probably three grand a month. I paid 795 pounds for the year, including all the bills. Okay. And that just allowed me to get that salary into paying down debt and recovering from med school debt. And again, that's something that isn't included in the BMA's graph, as far as I'm aware, but is a massive thing. When I think about things that move the needle for me, that was massive, man, because I just got, you know, but so I think, I don't know, what do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. I have a very similar timeline in that I graduated the same year as you. I lived in hospital accommodation during core training, which was a big saving. And I think what you described is it's basically the perfect storm for NHS doctors to remain in their lane isn't it you've got a system where you know in a career where you earn relatively modestly for a number of years if your interest is building up beyond control and then earn your you know the trade-off is you earn well later on yeah you're basically you know this is basically an indirect taxation which very much holds you back from growing economically and by that I mean you know saving for a deposit on a house. These are not talking about extravagant things. And so you can see how a few small changes in a generation can suddenly become exponential changes to an entire generation. I think, you know, the year before us, doctors had free accommodation during F1. That's a huge, you know, admittedly, it wasn't probably very nice, but it was, you know, a chance to save a pot of money. And I don't think the F1 salary has hugely changed since then to reflect that. And, you know, there have been loads of other changes as well. We, you know, your podcast has very well covered the changes to pension terms, tax on pensions. You know, I've had a brown envelope now for the last three years. It's sort of leading people towards not taking on extra work at a time when we need people to do extra work, isn't it? It's just, it's a real shame. And then obviously the retirement age is different for, for that generation as well, isn't it? So all those things. I think also, yeah, sorry, there's so much more I could say, but we're on the topic of finances. So I reckon we've, we don't want to go on about finances because I think this, this, I know the current dispute is about pay. I'm not disregarding that. I'm just widening it out a little bit. I've got one more graph for you just on the student loan point, because it's a hard concept for people to grasp. But I think what you just said is exactly right. The doctors end up in this kind of zone where they don't earn very much for a long time. And all of that time, your interest rate is accruing at RPI plus 3%. Okay. I would just say that the government have brought in an emergency cap at the moment because of high, really high inflation. So uh, it's currently capped at 6.5%. That's a positive, And that is a minutia detail. I don't want to get derailed by the detail, but someone will write in if I don't say it. And I love that about our audience because people are paying attention. So here's a graph. But doctors just get caught in that perfect storm, low pay for quite a number of years, interests just accruing massively, okay? And then higher, are we gonna call it high? Higher pay towards the end of the career. But by then the debt has accumulated such a point that you will never pay it off. And this is just a nice little graph, which just shows that the irony is that if you earn a very low amount or a very high amount, then you pay less interest than someone else who earns a medium high amount. And guess who earns a medium high amount? Doctors. <laughs> so it is not, you know, it's not the case that everyone's paying the same here yeah. at, because of the way it is. I'm not sure what the opposite of a sweet spot is, a sour spot where they don't earn much for a long time and then the earnings do ramp up. But by that time, the debt's got massive and they will never pay it off. So then they just wait 30 years and then it, the debt is wiped. But in that time, they're paying 9% of the earnings. And it's just another another problem yeah and i think that it's a subject that probably doesn't get talked about enough and i think it's often because perhaps a lot of people just don't 
give it enough thought we're you know often too busy just getting our head down and trying to do a good job but this becomes important when this subject becomes debated nationally you know and it is going to when the junior doctor ballot results come and so I think it's really helpful that people listen to this podcast and just are able to articulate it well and of course you know a lot of these elements do affect you know a generation of all professions I get that there are certain factors that you've explained that mean that doctors are very likely to be you know extra affected by this but I think also even within the profession it's helpful to be able to explain in in these terms to our seniors who you know because the counter argument might be you know I lived very simply to begin with you know I did my hard yards I did one and two resident on call 120 hour weeks my consultant was often absent I had to move around every six months you know all those things are true I've witnessed it with my own father he you know he did have to apply for a new job every six months Thursday morning to Monday evening non-stop on call and also you know the attitudes to diversity were different in those days selection processes were less transparent you could remain at the same grade for a number of years whereas we more or less you know once you get into training you know you know you're going to progress this is the counterbalance isn't it and if you're not able to explain it well then you'll just end up frustrating yourself I think definitely and I say no one's disputing that you know that it wasn't all roses back in the day this isn't a race to the bottom, okay? Definitely not. And we definitely yeah. understand that people like your father, you know, those long on calls and the ultimate responsibility really that they bore, whereas now things are more team kind of delegated, shall we say. And it's not a race to the bottom, but we got to say, look, those couple of graphs that where junior doctors are choosing to go, if we cannot retain these people and we care about the health of this country and we care about continuing an NHS, which is free at the point of use... We need to stand up and say, okay, it was tough for me back then. You know, my final salary pension that I took at 60 with a three times lump sum that I paid half the contributions that you guys pay. You know, that was really hard. Definitely. I'm joking. But something has gone wrong and we can either argue about it or we can try to understand it. And I think if we don't get to grips with it, I'm just really worried about the future of, yeah, yeah. the NHS, especially medicine less so, because I think you know, let's just be honest. I think doctoring has been a profession for thousands of years and it will all, there will always be a, a need for doctors. But I do worry about the NHS future, definitely. I don't know. I think the other thing, Tommy, about help, sort of understanding this and being able to explain it between the generations is because if, you know, if we can't change the economic factors around this, if we don't successfully campaign for high wages or, you know, whatever then I think we have to change the expectations we place on our juniors. I don't think, you know, if the social contract is that broken, I can't expect my juniors to make the same sacrifice that I did. And by that, I'm talking about the things in medicine that happen for free. You know, I think if you think about, you know, sitting on committees, writing textbooks, reviewing journal articles, all those things that you do just out of professional goodwill, all the things that probably make medicine in this country go from basically safe to world class. Those are all things that I happily did out of professional goodwill, but also, you know, with the understanding that my bosses appreciated it and it led to me, you know, hopefully led to me, I'd like to think, ending up in this wonderful job that I'm in now, which I love. But if I can't promise the same outcome to my juniors i just don't feel i can ask the same sacrifices of them that's my view 
Yeah, definitely. I think what you're talking about is like the goodwill uh, and the goodwill and dedication of all staff in the NHS, all staff, like across the board. It just blows my mind. Like, I think, you know, I said why I love, still love being a doctor. I'll tell you the answer to my question about what I recommend it to my kids in a bit. But you know, I just love working in the team in the same way that you just reached out and said, I'll sort your ear out. Just come see me. Like the team in medicine across the board, you know, not just doctors, the whole team. It is an amazing team, all striving for the same thing. But for the first sort of time recently, I've seen that goodwill be eroded. Like back when I was at F1, yeah, we stayed late, man, like <laughs> definitely. But then on a quiet day, and there were quiet days, the boss would be like, guys, you know, we had a massive day yesterday, operated all day, and then we did the world round at like 8 p.m., even though you all finished at 5. Just take the afternoon off and I'll hold your bleep. And you're just like, cool. I just think now the goodwill has just been eroded because that just doesn't, it's just not possible for you to do that for your juniors now because you're like flat out as well. Everyone, the whole system's flat out. The goodwill is getting eroded. Once you've lost the goodwill, we got big problems. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, let's get to it. That was an amazing summary. And again, this is just mine and Joe's personal views. I think, you know, I was really disappointed by the 2016 strikes. Presumably you were a junior then as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but I, I do think the messaging coming out of the BMA right now is a lot stronger. I think they're doing an amazing job. So just take what we say as a little pinch of salt, but check out the BMA website for the actual facts and figures. I think their messaging has been really bang on. I've seen an infographic on social media with somebody performing some kind of massive operation and it displays the hourly rate of the surgeon and the anaesthetist. And it's just, wow, that is, you know, that is less than I pay someone to decorate my house for an hour and this person's doing life-saving surgery. So check that out. But yeah, would you recommend medicine to your kids or not? <laughs> it's a big question, isn't it? And I think what I'd say before answering that is, you know, my role as a parent is to help my children understand the world for what it is and what it will be. And if I have ended up, if I end up doing that and they still decide that they want to go into medicine, then I will be joyful for all the ways I know that they will be able to serve their fellow man as part of that job, you know, in, in remarkable ways, in ways that I'm able to do now. I don't think anyone can take that away from this profession. But, you know, we've talked about the economic realities of it and how they're different. And yes, as a parent, I'm, of course, going to be concerned for them. It probably means that I'll retire later <laughs> to try and, you know, help them like the way I was helped. Because I know that the way I was helped has made me, has put me in a position where I can love the job still. But I think, you know, is medicine the right career is going to come down to a few things, going to come down to your core values, which are different for different people. You know, I think probably my, you know, I say my faith comes into that for me, but that's going to be different for different people what your unfair advantages are we've talked on you know talked on that i think i've had a number of unfair advantages particularly having help onto the london property ladder to be able to live in a flat that's commutable to central london you know i think if i had an hour and a half commute on a bus on three buses i might feel differently about my day and also i think this the culture between specialties varies quite a lot i mean i don't think ent you know is perfect but i think i think i appreciate that it's generally attracts you know good-natured people who appreciate work-life balance but love their job and do it well and I think being an on-call specialty rather than a shift specialty has been a huge thing for me in my 20s not having to miss late 20s 30s not having to miss anyone's wedding and I think if you became a parent during that time it's probably easier to swap your on-calls 
in an on-call specialty rather than a shift specialty. But, you know, personally, am I excited about thought of my children being a med reg and, you know, being a parent and a med reg in tomorrow's generation? I think I would have a lot of anxiety about it, but that's born out of huge respect for what those guys do. Yeah, Leah, shout out to any medreg. I remember my career ambition became to avoid being a medreg. And I think someone said to me that like when you're sorting out your career, trying to get it clear in your mind, you look at people 10 years ahead of you and think, would you want to be them? Would you want their lifestyle? And I mean, I just think being a medreg, you just are the absolute brunt of it all. So mass respect for those guys. Okay. I think that's a really comprehensive answer, but essentially you're saying probably not, right? (laughs) Without saying it, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably going to do the same as well. So I think for me, I have absolutely zero regrets about doing medicine. I still love the job. I say I get paid to help people make them better. And that is still, I think, the best job in the world. I love working in the healthcare team, amazing people. We're all just striving for the same thing, which is to do the best we can for each patient. And there's a but coming. I mean, I've already talked about things that really you know, annoy me and it's pay annoys me and pensions annoy me and workload annoys me. But none of those will be reasons that I leave medicine. If I ever leave medicine, it will be because I'm no longer satisfied. The system allows me to provide the best care that I can. And regrettably, I think that's becoming increasingly common. So I love it. I have zero regrets about doing it. Would I recommend it to my kids? I don't think I would. And that might seem like a bit of a paradox, but you know, I came from work-class background. I had no contacts and I had no money. What I did have was the ability to pass exams. And that was an amazing unfair advantage that I had. But I also felt tremendous pressure to maximize that unfair advantage. And medicine was an obvious step for to doing that. And it was a great step, but and I never regret it, but it's so hard. It's just so hard. And I guess what I want for my kids is I was not forced into medicine at all. Like I had zero pressure from anyone except myself. And, I, and that was the worst pressure. But I want my kids to decide to do medicine because they want to, not because they feel like I felt like it was my one shot to sort of elevate myself. And yeah, I took the shot and it worked. Okay. But I want my kids to go, I might just, you know, start a startup when I'm 18. I might just leave school at 16 and follow my passion, whatever that might be. But I just want them to not feel like they have to do it because it's a sort of guaranteed path because it is very hard. So yeah, I haven't really articulated that very well, I don't think. But I basically, the more financial security I've got, the more I've benefited it from. Like Medic's money was born because I got myself into a position where I could go, do you know what? I'm going to stop doing medicine for two days a week and start a podcast, which earns no money and a website, which we have no idea how we're going to fund. But I can do that because I now have financial security. When I was 20, I could not do that because I had nothing except ability to pass exams. And I just want my kids to have a totally free choice. And maybe that's naive. Maybe they're all going to drop out, be bums and buy a motorbike when they're 16, which is like my worst nightmare. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think you've touched on some really good points. I think the point about the system you work in very much affects your resilience, you know, and it's continuing to go south and at some point it tips the scales. And I think, yeah, just about the leg up you have, I think makes a big difference. So, you know, if you don't, if you're in a position where you don't have to worry about debt and you know, sinking before you've swam, then it's still in many ways is a wonderful profession but that is my concern that it will become a hobby for the well-off yeah it will split into a a profession that's 
you know, a hobby for well-off people and then people who are miserable and sinking. And I just, it just seems so unjust. And, you know, even though I'm on the good side of that at the moment, I just don't want to see it happen. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because we've come from opposing sides of the same coin, but reaching the same conclusion. I suppose what I was trying to articulate as well was like when I was in med school and there was an exam, and this might be unfair on people, but they were like worrying about failing the exam. And I was thinking, if I fail this exam, I got 85 grand of debt and I got literally nothing. So yeah, I work quite hard. And they were also worried about failing the exam, but for totally different reasons, because I kind of knew if they failed, they weren't going to have a money problem. But it was maybe mm. that maybe everyone has pressures from different points, but definitely that's how I would sort of think about it. And I continue to feel that pressure like to this day, really. And for my kids, I don't want them to have that financial pressure. I want them to say, yeah, I want to be a doctor because I love it. But to be honest, they already asking really awkward questions. Like when I'm on a medics money day, I get to take them to school, uh, take them to ballet and all the other things they do. And then I put them, read them the story and put them in bed. And then they ask, are you doing medics money tomorrow? I'm like, no, I'm on call. And they just know that I'm going to leave the house at six. I'll be mm. back at probably eight or later and they're already sort of working it out themselves i'm not putting words in their mouth but yeah i mean yeah i think the other thing about it and trying to answer that question is you know trying to forecast what this job will look like in 25 years time you know when our toddlers are junior doctors if you think about how much it's changed since you know i was a kid to now and we perhaps we you know this we're sort of doing things the wrong way or to think about the amount of scrutiny and vulnerability we are susceptible to now you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Shipman, Ian Patterson, but also Hadiza Bawagaba, David Selu. We're so much more vulnerable in the system now than we were. There's social media. You're only one, you know, unhappy or awkward patient away from having your name, you know, unilaterally trashed. So I think, you know, that's something to think about. We haven't talked about the effect that is going to have on training. So, you know, you can't leave an SHO to do a list on their own anymore for all those reasons and more. And that, you know, that affects, you know, what that trainee will become at the end of it. Think about how bureaucracy has changed and the erosion of admin support, how much more I'm a, as a consultant and now fielding, you know, I'm now the first port of call for emails, you know, which I'm often replying to on a Friday night or a Saturday, you know, just to keep up and also to protect the juniors from because they're already swamped with even more stuff. And yeah, the blurring of work and home, you know, is a big thing, isn't it? So if it's changed that much in a generation, how much more will it be different in the next? Maybe it'll be better, you know, maybe, you know, AI is going to change everything. <laughs> it'll be a different job. But I just I would like to see it start going, you know, back towards a positive direction before I would get excited about my kids doing this. Yeah, there's so much that we didn't talk about. We need to, if we don't get cancelled for making this episode, <laughs> we should do this again because I'm really glad you mentioned Dr. Bauer-Garber. Everybody, not just doctors, need to familiarise with that. You know, tragic case in which a young boy died, but you know, he was basically hung out to dry carrying two bleeps first day back from maternity leave, and as a result, a young child died. Absolutely tragic. You mentioned David Selu. That's oh, just that one is crazy. Uh, we got Dr. Chris Day, who's a whistleblower. And also recently a GP uh, got suspended for requesting a laptop to allow them to practice remotely. Suspended by the GMC. The GMC are, yeah, yeah we will get cancelled if we go there. But we should talk about that at another point as well, because that is, is something... We're much more vulnerable in, in today's system. I feel it as a consultant. Yeah. And I'm sure junior doctors feel it even more so. Yeah, yeah. That was so insightful, Joe. It's just so great to have your insights on this. And it's something that you've obviously thought about deeply. If people want to 
You mentioned that you did an Instagram video. So if people want to view that or they want to cancel you, do you are we put are we putting your Instagram and you're on TikTok as well, right? Yeah, no trolls, please. But I yeah, I do have I set up an Instagram channel, Ear Surgeon Joe, mainly to kind of yeah, hopefully inspire the upcoming generation around ears and hearing surgery. But I've done the occasional post on being a young parent as a surgeon and yeah, the whole kind of junior doctor strikes my take on it. So yeah, if that's interesting, then please do yeah. check it out. Yeah, I'll put the links in the show notes, but Ear Surgeon Joe on Instagram. That's it. <laughs> okay, cool. And I think just to try and end on a positive note, you you said what's going to happen in 25 years when our toddlers might be thinking about being doctors. I think it's a pendulum. Okay. And my GP trainer, who's really wise, says that basically like Florence and the Machine, it's always darkest before the dawn. It will be a pendulum, which I think today's juniors are already, they've got that pendulum and they're pushing it back the other way. So full credit to them, because I really hope it is a pendulum uh, that swings back to better times. Because if it isn't, yeah, I think we've got problems. But that was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for offering to look in my ear. It's all cured now, but Great. I am actually about to go surfing, wearing my earplugs, et cetera, et cetera. Got any other ear tips for surfers quickly? <laughs> no, just don't stick anything in your ear to get the wax out. Let it self-clean. Surfing can lead to something called exostosis, which is a bony narrowing of the ear canals. So every so often I have to do an operation to drill those out. But otherwise, yeah, just don't stick anything smaller than your elbow in your ear. I got exostosis on my F1, which definitely shows you how times have changed because I had enough time in F1, which was 15 years ago to surf in Jersey. And uh, but I didn't use earplugs and cold. It's like cold water stimulates the bone. And is that That's right? It. That's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I just gonna say hear hearing loss is my passion. So and I think loads of people have it without knowing it. And it has the effect on listening effort and mental fatigue is totally appreciated. So if you've got any family members that you think are losing their hearing, encourage them to have a hearing test. That'd be my other public service announcement. Yeah, my public service announcement as well is that lots of my GP patients are very old and people bring them in saying, I think they've got dementia. They don't. And then you, the, one of the first things that we check a few baseline things, obviously, but one of the first things I check is hearing. And you'll be amazed at how many times a hearing aid fixes someone's dementia so 100%. yeah the lancet report from a couple of years ago showed that hearing loss is the biggest modifiable risk factor for dementia above smoking hypertension diabetes all those other things so there you go fascinating yeah definitely what i've if that if this podcast hasn't got something for you in it i don't know what's <laughs> gonna keep you happy we talked about money we talked about life children hearing loss exostosis is that how you say it? exostosis yeah yeah i want to mispronounce it right and you know what tommy i sometimes i think why am i you know, on this podcast talking about money. When I'm, I love my job. I am thankfully economically fine now, but I just feel a sense of wanting to, you know, get people thinking about this for the sake of the next generation. That is my only wish that comes out of this. 100%. Like we are both, like I, I'm really happy with my job and my life. And it's about not pulling the ladder up behind me. It's about 100%. putting the ladder down and saying, you know, I genuinely believe things are worse for a doc F1 doctor right now than when I was an F1. So anything that I can do to help them and everyone in this profession can help each other. And if we all work together, this podcast is just like that. Like we've grown massive, not because me and Ed are genius at promoting podcasts, but because people like you, Joe, and all of the other people just tell their friends about it and find it useful. And if we all work together, we can do that. And let's not pull the ladder up and get into a fight about whether the older consultants had a better deal than us. Let's just try and put the ladder down and bring everyone with us so that I want someone who graduates tomorrow to have what I had, maybe skipping the debt, 
and a few other things, but essentially that, and that's what it's about. So thanks 100%. so much, Joe. Really appreciate it. You're putting your head above the parapet. We might get cancelled. I've long since cared about getting cancelled. I feel like you have too. And don't cancel us. We're just telling you how it is, hopefully. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Thank you.